Welcome to the December 10th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study describing real-world data where PET scans following chemotherapy for primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma were used to guide consolidative radiotherapy. Learn more about the novel role of the Block 2 protein complex in the formation of weibel pilati bodies that store von Willebrand factor in endothelial cells. And finally, examine how mutant TP53 in myelodysplastic syndrome is associated with immune checkpoint overexpression in the bone marrow. Our first topic is a study entitled Outcome of Primary Mediastinal Large B-Cell Lymphoma Using RCHOP Impact of a Pet-Guided Approach by Anna Hayden and colleagues from BC Cancer and the University of British Columbia in Canada. Primary Mediastinal Large B-Cell Lymphoma, or PMBCL, typically occurs in young women who present with an often bulky anterior mediastinal mass. Morphologically, it is associated with compartmentalizing fibrosis and is often CD30 positive. These features, along with studies demonstrating molecular overlap with nodular sclerosis classic Hodgkin lymphoma, established PMBCL as a distinct entity. Due to the rarity of the disease, randomized data are lacking, and practice and treatment guidelines vary worldwide. Cure rates for PMBCL have improved with the integration of rituximab. However, the type of primary therapy and role of radiotherapy remain ill-defined. Rituximab and chemotherapy is currently considered standard frontline therapy in PMBCL, often involving cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristin, and prednisone, or CHOP. Chemoimmunotherapy is often followed by consolidative radiotherapy, or RT, to the anterior mediastinum, if RCHOP or an RCHOP equivalent regimen is used. Previous studies of RCHOP with radiotherapy demonstrate a 5-year progression-free survival of 77 to 81% and a 5-year overall survival of 84 to 89%. Thus, recent efforts have focused on the reduction of RT exposure due to the potential for long-term toxicities in this typically younger patient population. In British Columbia, a PET-adapted approach has been utilized to guide consolidative RT in all aggressive large B-cell lymphomas since July of 2005 when centralized positron emission tomography using fluorodeoxyglucose, or FDG-PET, became available. In this retrospective analysis, the authors evaluated the outcome of PMBCL primarily treated with RCHOP and the impact of using an FDG-PET scan at the end of this treatment to guide the use of consolidative radiation therapy. Patients 18 years or older having PMBCL treated with curative intent with rituximab and chemotherapy were identified. Prior to 2005, patients were recommended to receive RCHOP and RT. Beginning in 2005, only those with a PET-positive scan at the end of rituximab and chemotherapy received RT. 159 patients were identified, 94% were treated with RCHOP, and 44% received radiotherapy. Prior to the availability of PET scans, 78% received RT, but only 28% in the PET era beginning in 2005 received RT. The five-year time to progression and overall survival for the entire cohort were 80% and 89% respectively, similar across all treatment areas. In total, 
113 patients had an end-of-treatment PET scan, 63% were found to have a negative PET scan, and 37% had a positive scan. The five-year overall survival was 97% versus 88% for these two groups respectively. Most PET scans were scored by the Deauville criteria, the internationally recognized scale based on the uptake of FDG. Senior study author Carrie Savage states that this study represents the largest experience of PMBCL using RCHOP and a PET-adapted approach, and highlights that those with a PET-negative scan at the end of treatment, representing approximately 70% of all patients, have an excellent outcome in the absence of consolidative radiotherapy. The use of the PET-adapted approach reduced RT in the majority of patients, representing a 64% relative reduction in RT use, and produced similar survival to routine RT and dose-intensive regimens. Strengths of the study include minimized selection bias and uniform application of practice guidelines. However, the authors note that there was insufficient power to assess prognostic factors or definitively rule out differences for some survival analyses. Although the majority of patients treated with RCHOP had favorable outcomes, approximately 20% experienced disease progression or relapse, half of these with refractory disease. Refractory cases were largely captured by a Doval score of 5 in the PET scan, obtained at the end of treatment. These patients may benefit from integration of novel therapies in the frontline setting. A commentary provided by Eliza Hawkes from the University of Melbourne and Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute in Australia praises the authors for the central review of both histology and imaging in the majority of cases. While having a few limitations, she notes that the positive outcomes from the Canadian pet-adapted approach are encouraging. In the future, research efforts should continue to focus on maintaining positive outcomes while minimizing unnecessary toxicity. Further research is also needed to find effective treatments and alternative strategies for patients with refractory disease. Our next topic today is research conducted by Anish Sharda and colleagues, led by Robert Flamenhoft at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at the Harvard Medical School in Boston, entitled, VWF maturation and release are controlled by two regulators of weibel pilati body biogenesis, Exocyst and Block 2. Von Willebrand factor, or VWF, is an essential plasma hemostatic factor that links platelets to damaged endothelium and also serves as a chaperone for coagulation factor 8. VWF is synthesized in endothelial cells and stored in weibel pilati bodies, or WPB, before its release into the bloodstream. Mature plasma VWF is deficient in von Willebrand disease, which is the most common bleeding disorder in humans. Conversely, high VWF plasma cells or its increased release is associated with increased cardiovascular disease. A better understanding of the mechanisms underlying weibel pilati body biogenesis and exocytosis is important, as this could enable therapeutic modulation of VWF release. Lysosomal-related organelles, or LORs, are specialized organelles that include platelet-dense granules, melanosomes, and lytic granules in cytotoxic T-cells. These organelles are formed by budding of tubules from the trans-Golgi network and also acquire cargo delivered by specialized endosomes. The study by Sharda and colleagues shows an unexpected and crucial role for a protein complex known as biogenesis of LRO complex II or BLOCK2 in the formation of weibel pilati bodies. 
The block 2 complex is composed of three subunits, and mutations in the corresponding genes account for three subtypes of Hermansky-Pudlock syndrome, characterized by deficient melanin pigmentation and bleeding. Since block 2 functions in the biogenesis of platelet-dense granules and melanosomes, Sharda and co-workers hypothesized that block 2-dependent endolysosomal trafficking is essential for weibel pilati body biogenesis. To explore this idea, they depleted block 2 in human umbilical vein endothelial cells using lentivirus-delivered shRNA targeted at one of the block 2 subunits. This caused misdirection of cargo-carrying transport tubules from endosomes, resulting in immature weibel pilati bodies missing cargo from endosomal input and impairing formation of high molecular weight forms of VWF. They next sought to identify binding partners of block 2 using immunoprecipitation of block 2 followed by proteomics. They discovered that block 2 interacts with the exocyst complex. Exocyst is comprised of eight different proteins and known to function as a tethering complex, important for trafficking between membrane-bound compartments, although its function in endothelial cells was unknown. Again, Using shRNA to knock down expression, they showed that depletion of the exocyst complex also disrupts weibel pilati body biogenesis and multimerization of VWF. Thus, block 2 and exocyst docking is important for mediating endosomal input during VWF maturation. However, in contrast to block 2 depletion, which impairs exocytosis, exocyst depletion unexpectedly augments weibel pilati body exocytosis treating endothelial cell cultures with a reversible small molecule inhibitor of exocyst also increases release of high molecular weight multimers of VWF. This experiment shows that the inhibitory effect of the exocyst complex on Weibel-Pilati body exocytosis can be separated from its role in biogenesis of these organelles. These results provide the first direct evidence of a role for an interaction between block 2 and exocyst complex to mediate delivery of endosomal cargo to maturing weibel pilati bodies, which is essential for the formation of normal VWF multimers. Their data also shows that the exocyst complex has a separate role to tether weibel pilati bodies to the plasma membrane and control their exocytosis. This function can be reversibly inhibited to facilitate VWF release. This paper is accompanied by a commentary by Carampini and Vorberg from the Irish Centre for Vascular Biology at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland, and the Department of Molecular and Cellular Hemostasis at Sanquin Research in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, respectively. They note that this stimulating study significantly advances the understanding of the formation of weibel pilati bodies and paves the way for the identification of novel Block II regulated pathways that control delivery of cargo to storage compartments present in platelets and endothelial cells. Some remaining questions are how Block II and the exocyst complex coordinate cargo delivery with other regulatory proteins and the molecular mechanisms by which exocyst complex inhibits agonist-induced secretion of VWF. Our final topic today is the manuscript by David Salman and Amy McLemore from the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute in Tampa, Florida, and colleagues, entitled TP53 Mutations in Myelodysplastic Syndromes and Secondary AML Confer an Immunosuppressive Phenotype. Myelodysplastic syndromes represent a spectrum of hematopoietic stem cell malignancies that are characterized by dysplastic and ineffective hematopoiesis, 
and can transform into secondary acute myeloid leukemia. Molecular characterization of MDS and secondary AML has significantly advanced our understanding of pathogenic somatic mutations in these malignancies. In particular, MDS and secondary AML patients with TP53 mutations represent a distinct molecular cohort with a uniformly poor prognosis regardless of treatment, with a median overall survival of only 6 to 12 months. This abysmal survival highlights the unmet need for a better understanding of the pathogenetic mechanisms underlying these poor outcomes and for novel therapeutic approaches. While the role of somatic mutations in the pathogenesis and clinical outcomes of MDS and secondary AML has improved, the dynamic and complex landscape of these mutations and their interaction with the immune system is still emerging. In this study, the authors characterized the immunological features of the malignant clone and alterations in the immune microenvironment in patients with MDS or secondary AML that had either wild-type or mutant TP53. They used bone marrow mononuclear samples cryopreserved at time of diagnosis from 30 and 73 patients that were TP53 mutant and wild-type respectively that were collected between September 2012 to October 2017. They focused on the relationship between immune checkpoint expression in MDS and secondary AML with mutations in TP53, and if these are associated with differential checkpoint expression. The most well-described inhibitory immune checkpoint is the interaction of the programmed DEATH1 receptor with PD ligand 1, or PDL1. This team characterized checkpoint molecules by lineage and stage of maturation to sort out possible relationships with immune cell subsets in molecularly defined cohorts of MDS and secondary AML patients. Notably, PDL1 expression is significantly increased in hematopoietic stem cells of TP53 mutant patients. This is associated with upregulation of MYC and marked downregulation of MYC's negative regulator, MIR-34A, which is a P53 transcription target. OX40 is a co-stimulatory receptor on lymphocytes that augments adaptive immunity. Bone marrow from patients with mutant TP53 had significantly reduced numbers of OX40-positive cytotoxic T-cells and helper T-cells. In addition, highly immunosuppressive regulatory T-cells and PD-1-low myeloid-derived suppressor cells are expanded in samples from TP53 mutant cases. Finally, Salman and team found that a higher proportion of immunosuppressive Tregs infiltrating the bone marrow is a highly significant independent predictor of overall survival. They conclude that the microenvironment of TP53 mutant MDS and secondary AML has an immune-privileged evasive phenotype that may be a primary driver of poor outcomes. This suggests that immunomodulatory therapeutic strategies may offer a benefit for this subgroup of patients. Supporting commentary on the manuscript was provided by Platzbecker and Kordasti from the Leipzig University Hospital in Leipzig, Germany, and the KHP Kruk Cancer Center in London, respectively. They point out that this study is one of the few in MDS where immune signatures are linked with a specific somatic mutation. These results identified a potential immune pathway that may both predict response and can be targeted to improve response to therapies, such as checkpoint immune inhibitors. Another interesting finding of this study is the expansion of immunosuppressive regulatory T-cells. Expansion of Tregs and other immunosuppressive cell populations, such as MDSCs, progenitor B-cells, 
and thrombomodulin-expressing monocytes are previously reported in MDS and AML and are usually correlated with a higher risk of progression. Platzbecker and Cordasti conclude that this study provides a novel and important insight into the pathophysiology of MDS and secondary AML, linking a common somatic mutation with immune cell alterations. It also creates new questions for further investigation. For example, which came first, alterations in the immunome or the genome? For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.